listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Again, we're in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Uh, I'm not going to recap what Sam preached last week. Um, I would definitely commend you to listen to that sermon as well as the one before. We're only three messages in to Colossians. But I will say this, that the first, um, the verses 3 through 8 that we read last week, we talked about how Paul was thanking the Colossians. And the reason that he thanks the Colossians is because he sees in them the larger universal work of the gospel, kingdom work moving forward in the whole world. And he celebrates this truth. He celebrates this truth by thanking God for their faith specifically. And so Paul calls out this faithfulness as well as the faithfulness of Epaphras, this faithful servant who planted the Colossian church, who informed Paul of what was happening at this church, both the good as well as the bad. He he points out some alarming things that he wants Paul to speak into, but he also points out the deep love in the spirit that they have. And so the primary purpose of the letter is to address an issue, to address a a problem in the church, some false teaching. But the way that Paul goes about this is striking to me. And I I think it's illustrative for us today as believers, as well as a church, for us to pay attention to what Paul does here. And this is pretty normative for Paul's writings. If you're familiar with his letters that he writes to the churches, he'll typically begin with a thank you. And then he moves into prayer before he addresses whatever the issue is, with the notable exception of Galatians. He was astonished that they were believing a different gospel, and he actually calls them out as fools. But all the other ones, he is thanking them, he is praying for them before he addresses whatever it is he needs to address. And that's true of the Colossian church here this morning. The Colossian church is part of the larger kingdom of God. And the fruit that Paul sees and that they see in that church is the same fruit that God bears everywhere where his true gospel is preached. It was true in the first century church at Colossae. It was true in all of the other churches in the first century. And it's true of every church in the ensuing century since then that preaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's true of churches today here in West County as well. But there's a problem in the church, in the Colossian church. There's some false teaching, but Paul chooses to do something different first. He chooses to see the good thing first. One of my questions is, how do we do with that? Do we choose to see the good things first? When we hear, and we all, we're all connected with other churches. Let's, let's not pretend like we don't know. We, we know of things going on in other churches or fellow brothers and sisters in the church, particularly, but also outside the church. How do we react when we hear someone or a church not believing the gospel in some specific way? Because there's an area in every one of our lives where we're misbelieving the gospel. It's just true of all of us because we're still sinners, been paid for, but we are still sinners, and sin is, is non-belief. It's unbelief. We need to be moving from unbelief to belief in every area of life. So how do we do that? When we see that, when we see this, this, this type of unbelief manifesting itself in behavior that doesn't typify a Christian or doesn't typify a Christian church, what do we do? What do you do? 
Do we, do we gossip? Do we, are we quick to rebuke or correct? Do we challenge without really having a firm relational foundation to stand on before we challenge? Or do we choose, this is a choice, do we choose to see evidences of grace in their lives first? Do we choose to see them first and foremost as image bearers of the one true God who has saved us? What does Paul do with the Colossian church? He lays a foundation first of gratitude. He's going to correct them, but he lays a foundation of gratitude for their faith that he has heard about, and then he prays for the Colossian church. And then as we see at the end of our passage today and on into next week's passage, he holds up Jesus Christ as sufficient in all things. Because any unbelief must first be dealt with by pointing to Jesus. By pointing to Jesus, we need to get out of the way And we need to point that person to Jesus. Not thump them over the head with a Bible. And I think that the tenor of our current culture, both outside the church, for sure, and sadly, inside the church at times, is one of judgment and harshness and quick-temperedness and lack of the benefit of the doubt. Anything but grace, charity, and thanksgiving. It's sad. It's sad that it occurs outside the church, and it's even sadder that it occurs inside the church. But what we see in our passage of this morning, again, I think is illustrative to us. We see that the fuel of thanksgiving to God for the Colossian church manifests itself in, th- in, in prayer by Paul. Now, I don't think we take unthankfulness serious enough. Paul did. Paul took unthankfulness very serious. He says in Romans 1, after saying that God's wrath was being revealed against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of mankind, he says, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give him thanks. So unthankfulness is a pretty big deal to God. We as believers, which should be the most thankful people on the face of the earth. We should be the most thankful people on the planet, and that thankfulness then, because I'm not, I'm not here to, to castigate us and say we're not thankful people. We are. Many of you are. All of us are in some aspects of our life. But we all need to be more thankful. I'm convinced of that. I do. But the next step of thankfulness is prayer. And I think we need that exhortation. We need to turn that thanksgiving into prayer. And here's, here's a point to start out with. If our prayer life is lacking, and who among us is our prayer life not lacking, right? Nobody, nobody is saying any of us are perfect. We're not. We all need help with our prayer life. But when we look at the lack of our prayer life, I think if we struggle with prayer, which we do, as I said, we're probably struggling with thanksgiving. We're probably struggling with thanksgiving to God or other people. So let that be a a word of note for us this morning as we get into our passage this morning and we understand that thanksgiving is what fuels Paul's prayer this morning. So let me pray for our time this morning and then we will read our passage this morning and we'll, we'll get into this. Father, we're grateful for today. We're grateful for a beautiful day today after the rains uh, of yesterday. We thank you for a beautiful sunshine, cool weather and fall leaves and Lord, it's a gift. 
in this part of the world. You give us a gift when we see the turning leaves and the beauty and the cool breeze, and, and we're just grateful for that, God. But today, Lord, as we gather as your people, we pray, I pray, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word, that you would give me clarity as I speak, and that you would give all of our ears and our hearts openness to, to receive the word of God and to be doers of the word. And may we give you glory in it all. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read for us verses 9 through 14, our text today. And Paul says this, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Before I start, I want to, um, I forgot to say this at the beginning, I want to thank Lane for his meticulous song choices. Every, every week, um, this, is the, this is the third time I think that I've, I've just taken the songs that I know that we're singing and I've gone to Spotify and made a playlist and just listened to them over and over and over again while I, either while I'm preparing my message or in this case just this morning as I, I did some, some uh, last minute fixes, uh, I just listened to the words and they were beautiful and I commend that to you guys. Maybe we can put it out on Facebook or something to let you guys know what the song list was today. We don't always know a lot of times ahead of time too far, but um, but I want to thank Lane for that because he takes great care to do that. And so it was good for my soul, and I just want to acknowledge that this morning. Thank you, Lane, and thank you, Ban, for, for your faithfulness as well. This passage, these six verses, they're, they're just six verses in our text today, but there's a lot in this passage, and we won't get to most of it. In the Greek, it's one, one lengthy, one, one run-on sentence for Paul. Paul can do that. But for our purposes today, I want to break this down into four parts for us today. And here are the parts. We have the prayer itself, is part one, as followed by the purpose of that prayer. Third part is a description of what living out that prayer looks like. And then the fourth thing is we have a foundation for the prayer. It's an anchor or a weight that brings both the praying aspect as well as the living out the prayer to life. And this fourth part is called the gospel reminder. So we've got the prayer itself, the purpose of the prayer, a description of what a lifestyle of living out this prayer looks like, and then a gospel reminder. Those are our four parts this morning. First, let's talk about the prayer itself in verse 9. Paul says, and so, as a result of everything I just said in this section before that Sam preached on last week, and so, from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. In all, spiritual and, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
That's the prayer. That's the prayer. That's it. It's one simple prayer of Paul asking that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. It's a very simple prayer that he prays. And it's really important to note right out of the gate that the agent of the filling is God. The agent of the filling is God. Paul's not praying, I hope you have a great quiet time. I hope you're filling your mind with more knowledge of Jesus. This is more than that. Those are good things. Spiritual disciplines are good things. Quiet time with the Lord is a good thing. Taking in, memorizing, reading Scripture is a good thing. They're necessary spiritual disciplines. But this is a continual prayer by Paul asking God to fill them with his will. So we're dealing with being filled, first and foremost, and God's will, number two. So the only thing we really need to know about being filled is that this is God's work. This isn't human reading of the word of God and just taking it in that way. It's that and more. It's a filling of God's word. It's a supernatural act. That's why he says spiritual wisdom and understanding, supernatural, Holy Spirit-fueled filling that results in something very specific. Holy Spirit-fueled filling that results in something very specific. So it's God that does the filling. The question is, are you spiritually available to God? Are you tuning in to the voice of God? via the spiritual disciplines, via the taking in of the Word of God, the reading of the Word, the memorizing of the Word, the quiet time, diligently, daily quiet time with the Lord. That's your part. Are you available spiritually to be filled by the Spirit of God? Because the way that you know that you are is your life is marked by something that we don't like to say often, but I will, obedience. So obedience, it's not a bad word, it's in Scripture. We are, when we obey the word of God, that's, that's an evidence of fruit in our life, is when we obey God's word. Paul prays for wisdom and understanding, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Holy God infused Holy Spirit under, wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is knowing, right? Wisdom is knowing and then doing what we know. What is wisdom if we don't do it? Scripture says it's foolishness. Scripture says it's foolishness if we don't do what we know. So the filling is God's work, and our work is being available and then engaging in the work. And that's the filling part. That's really all we need to know, that it's God's, God does the filling in this equation. Our question is, am I spiritually available for that? So the next thing, what about the will part? And who among us doesn't want to know the God, what God's will is? Right? We all do. We all have aspects of our life where we want to know what God's will is, but we have to be careful when we answer yes to that question. Because the point is when we say that we want to know the will of God, we're thinking in terms of an aspect of my future that's determined by an impending choice. Not just my future, but your, your future. You get the idea. What job should I take? Who should I marry? 
Where should I live? Which church should I go to? What, maybe I have a major purchase that is before me, and I need to pray about that. I need to understand what God's will is in that. Now, those aren't bad things to pray about. In fact, often in my life, I don't pray for those things. I think I have it. I don't think God needs to speak into those areas of my life. And so I don't seek God's will in those areas. However, we have to be careful about thinking of God's will primarily in terms of our own future, in terms of our own vocation, in terms of our own needs, because that turns into self-centeredness. So we need to be careful when we, talk, when we think about, when we talk about wanting to know God's will is a good thing, but we have to be careful not simply to think of it in self-centeredness. So what then is the will of God that the Holy Spirit fuels? Well, let me say just a couple of things here. The first thing in Psalm 143 it says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. D.A. Carson says, to do God's will is synonymous with obeying what God has mandated. What God has mandated is his will. Our responsibility is to do it. I don't have a Rembrandt picture of D.A. Carson, my apologies, but you can Google him because he's alive and well. But the psalmist doesn't say, teach me your will. He says, teach me to do your will. Now, the point in this is that God's will is not unknown for any of us, right? God's will is not vague in our lives. God is quite clear in his word what his will is. So we need to understand that God's will, we want to know God's will, yes, but God's word is not vague, it's not nebulous, it is known and it is clear. You say, okay, Craig, then what is the will of God? Well, let's, let's go to Romans 12, we'll put it up on the screen, you don't need to turn there. But in Romans 12, it's a famous passage, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul is making this assertion here that the transformation that takes place when we are saved, which is what he lays out so beautifully in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, that transformation compels us to ongoing conformity to the things of God. Ongoing conformity and transformation into Jesus he says that this ongoing conformity, or as he says it, this renewal of the Christian mind does something, and it allows us to discern God's will, specifically that it is good, acceptable, and perfect. In other words, we're equipped by God to discover not only what his will is and his ways are in a very clear way, but that those ways, that clear will is good, acceptable, and perfect. In other words, God's ways are best. His will is clear and his ways are best. The way we like to say it around here, you may have heard, is Jesus is better. The ways of Jesus are better, which is what the next week's passage is about, the supremacy of Christ. Paul holds up Jesus as better to the Colossian church in light of the false teaching they're believing. We always need to point to Jesus first and foremost. So if God's will is clear and God's will is best, and if you want specifics on what that looks like, because we, we all want specificity when it comes to the will of God. 
That's good and right. I've already said it's clear. So we should. We should want and expect specificity with God's will. So if you want that, then what I would commend to you is to go home as homework today and read the rest of Romans 12. Because you will see a clear lying out of what God's will is and how we relate to one another as individuals. And so I would commend the rest of Romans 12, maybe even the rest of Romans, uh, as, as a, as a uh, homework assignment to what exactly the will of God is that Paul talks about there. So we need to understand that God's will is clear and God's will is best. Let's go a little bit deeper. I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians 5 for this as we talk a little bit more about the will of God in this prayer that Paul talks about, because he's asking God to fill them with the will of God. And I think it's important for us to take a little time about what the will of God is. So in Ephesians 5, Paul marries the concept of being filled with the Spirit, with the will of God, and how to live that out very clearly. It's another familiar passage He says in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 18, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There it is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So again, we see the connection between being filled with the Spirit of God and knowing God's will. We also see that wise living is doing, not just in knowing. What I want to point out are some specifics for us regarding what the will of God is for the believer and with a specific exhortation for our church. I want to do that this morning briefly. Paul tells us that rather than getting drunk with wine, get drunk with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't say it that way. That's what he means. Fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is emphasizing the critical importance for us to understand, again, that this is supernatural work. The question for us is, are we available to God? Are we available to God for the Word? I'm I'm not necessarily talking about the gifts of the Spirit and things that we can debate as open-handed issues. I'm just talking about being available for God, for the Spirit of God. We've all experienced, if you're saved, you've all experienced already the supernatural power of God in salvation. And it doesn't end there. Are we available for that? And if we're available, then are we doing it? Are we living in the Spirit? Are we walking in the Spirit? Are we walking in the flesh? In Ephesians 5, Paul uses the concept of this supernatural filling of God's will as a launch pad to describe how Christians ought to wisely live out their their lives in the will of God. And in this case, regarding right relationships, just like he does in the Romans 12 passage I just mentioned, in Ephesians 5, he, he lays out a foundation and then he talks about how we live it out. I mean, think about the passages that follow what I just read. The passages that follow in Ephesians 15 through 18, so that's, that's 5, 19 through 6, 9. Those are, those are the passages about how husbands and wives are to treat one another. Those are passages about how children and parents are to relate to one another. And and in the context of the first century, about how masters and slaves are to relate to one another. 
And those are all familiar passages to us, particularly the husbands and the wives and this idea of submission. But what fuels living out these relationships, specifically when we see that wives ought to submit to their husbands, but husbands ought to sacrificially live for their lives or die for their lives as Christ, sacrifice for the wives as Christ died for the church, sacrifices for the church. We read those and we're like, how can that happen? Well, it's because the foundation is being filled with the Spirit of God. We're not taught submission. That sounds a little odd. We're not taught submission to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. In fact, it's quite different. We rebel against God. We were hostile to God before he saved us. Even in our sin, he saved us in our hostility. So we weren't taught to submit to God. God saved you from a life of selfish living and brought you from darkness to light, and he enabled submission to you. Now, discipleship needs to happen. We need to grow and we need to mature in our faith, but salvation is of God. So not only are we enabled to submit to God, we are enabled to do his will. And in Ephesians 5, 20 through 21 now, we see God's clear will. We see that it is a lifestyle of giving thanks always and for everything to God. And we see, we see that, that his will is to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Two clear articulations by Paul what the will of God is. Always give thanks to God and submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Here's the exhortation. These two clear examples of the will of God in your life and in my life, how are we doing with those things? How are we living those out in our lives? A lot of areas in our lives that we're seeking the will of God, but there's some very clear areas that I think we need to check ourselves and how we are doing. Now, I know that there are those specific and important areas of your life that you desire to understand the will of God, and I'm not discounting those. Those are very important, and you should be praying to God for clarity. In fact, selfishly, as one of your pastors, I would love to be brought in on those conversations. I would love for a connect card to be put in the, in the basket and let us know how we can be praying in those areas for you. That's why we ask for you to, to let us know how we can pray for you. Because we want to know what God's will is for your life in those specific areas as well. It's important, very important. So I'm not saying don't do those things. Yes, do those things. But also... Look at the clear, revealed will of God. What I'm asking us all to consider is God's revealed will that turns our eyes and our me's and our minds into one another. Let me say that again. I want us to consider God's clear and better will in our lives as individuals, as, as a church, as Red Tree Church, his will that turns our eyes, not our eyes, but our eyes, and our me's and our minds into one another's. That makes sense? I want to make sure I'm very clear when I say that again. D.A. Carson says that it's folly to pretend to seek God's will for your life in terms of, and he gives the example of a marriage partner or some form of Christian vocation when there's no deep desire to pursue God's will as he has already kindly revealed it. He calls it folly. 
giving thanks continually to God and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ are pillars of the church. This is what makes the church the church. This is what makes the church unique. It's what makes the life of a Christian unique. It's what makes this church unique, Red Tree Church. I I believe this is in part what Paul is praying and thanking God for, what he sees in the Colossian church. I I don't think it's a stretch to say this is the kind of thing that Paul's thanking God for. He's thanking God that, that they have grateful hearts. He's thanking God that they submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. The question is, would Paul pray for Red Tree Church that way? It's a question. I think it's a worthy question to ask. Would Paul pray for our church that way? All that's under the first part of the will of God. Paul praying the prayer that he wants them to be filled with the Spirit and to know the will of God. The second part to this passage is the purpose of the prayer. We'll go a little quicker on these next couple of points, but in verse 10, the first part, Paul's praying that the Colossian church would be filled with the knowledge and the will of God in order that, or as he says here, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. The reason Paul prays this way is so that they would please God. That's why he's praying. He's praying that they would be filled with the knowledge and the will of God so that they would please him. And here's the important thing for us to know, that God has created us for so much more than we think. Do we we realize God delights in us? God delights in us. He loves you, believer. And he delights in you. He wants you to please him. That doesn't make him some, some megalomaniac. He is the creator of the universe, and he delights in you, the good works that God has given the body of Christ, not just in our church, but in all of the churches, those, are, those gifts are legion. Think about the gifts that he has given his people over the centuries. And then we have the unique gifts in our lives that he gives us, but there's a few that he's really, really specifically given us that he tells us, this is how I want you to live. He's, he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. He's given us, he's made us ambassadors for Christ and he wants to make his appeal through us. Those are gifts that God gives to us. The ministry of reconciliation. He says, you are an ambassador for Christ and I want to make my appeal through you, this fallen human, frail human being that thinks that they can't do anything right, that is filled with shame or filled with anger or frustration or confusion. God has saved you for his purposes, for these purposes, reconciliation, ambassadors, making his appeal through you, peacemaker. We're peacemakers. That's who we are. There's no fence sitting here with God. This is a cure for indifference and apathy. God delights in you. We need to be reminded of that, that God delights in you. We exist as a church to glorify God, to please Him. And when we consider that our good works, like faith itself, is a gift, then it makes sense that those good works would please our Lord. Because they're gifts given to us to use, to exercise, to bring Him glory. So let's walk in this way. Let's be those people that walk in those ways. Let's turn the the selfish aspects 
of our wanting to know God's will. Not, not the good ones, but the ones that are selfish. And we'll just leave it to yourselves to figure that out. What's the selfish aspect of wanting to know God's will? But what is it I need to, to read and to see and understand and live out the clear, good will of God? So we have the content of the prayer, we have the purpose of the prayer, and the third part is a description of what this pleasing lifestyle looks like. And there's four things. Christians bear fruit in every good work. We've really touched on this a little bit already. But that's the way that we know it's a good work. Because healthy things grow. Healthy things mature. And so one way we know that it's a good work and that it's from God is that it is growing. Now, sometimes we need, we need to understand what that growth means. How do we define growth? So those are things we need to bring other believers into this equation to understand what is health. Is it growth? Is it maturity? Is there, am I thinking that, it's, that it is when it really isn't? That's the first thing. Christians bear fruit in every good work. Christians grow in the knowledge of God. Again, this isn't a head knowledge that puffs up but a spirit-fueled knowledge that manifests itself in a love that builds up. Getting back to the one another's. It's a love that builds up. It's not a me-centered love. It's an others-centered love. When we're thinking of other people, that's the second. The third thing is Christians are strengthened so as to display great endurance with patience. Or with great endurance and patience. Now, Again, I'm going to leave that up to you guys. Each one of us is dealing with something in our lives. Something in our lives. And some of it I know is really, really hard stuff. But we're called to endure it and be patient with it. And we can do that because we serve a good God. And He's not unaware of what our struggles are and what our problems are as, as severe and as, as, um, as critical as they are in some of our lives, we are to avail ourselves of the spirit of the living God and endure great endurance and patience. The, the fourth and the final description of what a pleasing lifestyle to God looks like is Christians joyfully give thanks to the Father. Again, we should be the most joyful and the most thankful people on the planet. As believers, we should be about the business of giving thanks to God and have a deep joy in our soul because we possess an eternal perspective. We have a reservation with Christ that cannot be canceled. And we live so much for the here and the now that we forget that. And that doesn't mean we check out of this life. It means we see that life and it fuels us by the power of His Spirit to live with great joy in this life. And again, we need to remember that the Father has qualified us. And that brings us to the fourth part of our passage this morning. We have the foundation for this prayer that Paul prays in this last part. We have an anchor. We have a weight that brings the praying aspect as well as the living out aspect of this prayer to life. This is the gospel. And this is the reason that Paul writes this letter it's the reason Paul writes anything. Because it's the gospel. It's a gospel reminder. Verse 12, the second part of 12 to 14, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If there was ever a verse to memorize, that's one. Our greatest need, our greatest need is not financial. I know some of us have financial issues. Our greatest need is not entertainment. Lord knows that's not our greatest need, to be entertained any more than we already are. But we act like that's a need, don't we? We act like we deserve it. Our greatest need is not even political stability. Our greatest need isn't even health. If any of those were our greatest need, then God would have sent an economist or he would have sent a comedian, or he would have sent a politician, or he would have sent a doctor. Our greatest need is that we are sinners. And we are alienated from God. We have rebelled against him, and we are dead in that sin and rebellion. That is our greatest need. We need to remember that. There are so many distractions in our life, and we forget that we were once dead in our sins and transgressions, hostile to God, running as far away from Him as we possibly could. And what God did is He sent a Savior. He sent Jesus for that, to save us out of that. The the, the Creator of the universe has qualified you. That, That word literally means makes you fit. He has qualified you. He he has made you fit. When you're qualified to do a job, many of us have recently switched jobs and you've probably done a resume and sent it out and that, that prospective employer is reading that resume and what are they doing? They're making sure you're qualified for the job. Some, some of you are in school uh, to further your education to be more qualified, to be more fit for a better job. So this idea of being qualified is being fit for the job at hand, but God has made you fit. When Paul prays this prayer for the Colossian church, he backs it up by saying, you guys need to remember who you are. I'm not telling you a bunch of things that you need to do, a bunch of checks that you need to check off on this list. You need to remember who you are. You need to be remember that you've been brought from darkness to life, from dead, from darkness to light, from death to life. A cataclysmic change has occurred in each one of your hearts if you have been saved. And you are now in the kingdom of God. We sung in the very first song, our future has been redefined. And that's not just for eternity, it's for the now. It's not just for when we go home and we can finally rest and not deal with some of the stuff that we're dealing with now. It's for the here and the now. We are qualified, we are fit for what God has in your life today that you're struggling with, that you're depressed about, that you're going to walk out of here and that burden's going to bump on you like a weight. We are fit to deal with that, believer. God has seen to it that you are fit to deal with that. You guys remember last week when I came up here before I did the greeting and I looked out and I said, I said, you are the redeemed. You are the beloved. You are the saved. You are the sanctified. You are the peacemakers. You are the church. You guys remember I said that? Nobody listened, I guess. But what I was getting out, thank you, what I was getting at was what Paul says here, you are qualified, you're fit. All those things are true about you. You are fit. We need to remember the gospel. 
Second Peter 1.9, we need to remember that we have been cleansed from our former sins. So much, if not everything we do on a Sunday morning is that, just reminding ourselves of who we are. And then we're going to walk through those doors. And like I said, the minute we walk out those doors for some of us, that weight's going to hit us like a ton of bricks. And we need to be reminded again and again and again who we are in Jesus Christ. You are fit to be prayed over like this. That's what Paul's saying. That's what I'm saying to you. You're fit to be prayed over like this, church. This isn't Paul wishing something on the Colossian church or wishing that this would happen. Something has already happened to them. And Paul is choosing to remind them of that first before he gets to the bad part. God's the one who saves you. He's the one who keeps you saved he has made you fit. There's nothing you can do to make yourselves fit for God's service. When I asked a little while ago, and I said, would Paul thank God for Red Tree Church? The answer is yes. I wasn't trying to dig on anybody. The answer is yes, because we are fit. doesn't mean we have things to work on. We do have things to work on. We all do. Individually and collectively as a church, both as people of the church, as leaders of the church, we all have things to work on, but we are fit. God has qualified each and every one of us. Like Paul, my prayer is that we would walk it out, live it out as his church, as his people. There is a passage, a short verse in the book of Hosea, of all places, of all places to end. I'm going to end in Hosea. Chapter 14, verse 4. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I love that verse. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. God's love is free. There's nothing we do to earn God's love. Nothing we do to earn the salvation that he offers us through Jesus Christ? Do we recognize our need? Do we recognize our desperation that we have been disconnected from a holy God? And when we do, and God enables that, His grace comes flooding in, and He says, Beloved, you are mine, and I am yours. And we are fit, we are qualified then to live our lives freely, doing the will of God as he has clearly revealed it in the scriptures. Charles Spurgeon says about this particular verse in Hosea, something that I want to end with. He says that the sense of this verse hinges on the word freely. This is a glorious, this is the suitable, the divine way by which love streams from heaven to earth. A spontaneous love flowing forth to those who neither deserve it, purchased it, nor sought after it. It is indeed the only way in which God can love such as we are. The text is a death blow to all sorts of fitness. I will love them freely. Now, if there were any fitness in us, then he would not love us freely. We need to be reminded of that. God's love for us is a free love that he gives us unconditionally, and it's given us through Jesus Christ. I'm going to close out. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray this passage over our church. Van, you guys can come on, go ahead and come on up. But I'm going to pray verses 9 
through 14. Bow your heads. Receive this prayer. There's no better prayer than to pray Scripture over ourselves, over our family, over our church. And so from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that red tree may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Lord, I pray that, that your church here in West County, in this corner of the county, that we would be filled as your church with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that our church would walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord and that we would please you. God, we want to please you. You have us here to do your work and to please you. God, please let us please you in what we have and what we do as your people. We want that, Lord. We want to please you. We want to bear fruit, Lord. May Red Tree bear fruit in every good work, again, as individuals and as a church, that our good work would increase in the knowledge of God, that we would be strengthened by the power of your Holy Spirit according to your glorious might, Lord, and that we would, be, we would endure and we would have patience in what we have to endure. And when we think no one is looking at the pain that we're experiencing, but they get to see the way that we endure it with patience, Lord, that they would see something different in us as a believer because of the hope that we have. And then would we turn that in, Lord? Would you turn that in in our church with joy that we would give thanks to the Father because you have seen fit to invite us into the kingdom? to give us an inheritance with Jesus Christ and with the saints. We have been delivered, Lord. Church, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Lord, you have saved us as a people and you have drawn us together as a church and you have ransomed us and redeemed us and forgiven our sins so that we could receive that free gift and then love freely. God, may we be a church, may we be your church that does that, that lives that out in a way that is glorifying and pleasing to you. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have made us fit. Our prayer collectively, if, if, if the people of God in this room, and, and when they hear my voice, if we could just realize that you have made us fit to walk in this way, to not look inside of ourselves, but to look out. Because that's what our Savior did, and that's what He does. You're faithful to do this work, Lord. And we thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.